If you would take your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. So as you turn and, and find your place, just a reminder of what we have been doing uh, so far in this end time study. We've turned our attention to the millennial kingdom. We have noted that this is an area, perhaps the, the, the area of greatest debate when it comes to eschatology and, and Bible-believing people um, in, in regard to eschatology. When we, when we get to this point of, so when Revelation 20 talks about this thousand-year period of time, what is it talking about? And that's really the fundamental distinction between three broad approaches to a passage like Revelation 20. And I thought it would be helpful, I hope it has been helpful, that we've walked through two of the three viewpoints of this. And, and my purpose for doing so is, is twofold. Um, you know, one, I think, I think it is good and helpful to know other positions because I think that helps me more faithfully teach the position that I hold. So I think it is only fair to you then to know of these other options that are out there. And the second reason is to make sure that we emphasize, and this is what I've tried to do all along, that those who hold to the other two points of view love the Word and love Jesus and are committed to the Bible. Some of church history and even contemporary church history's greatest Bible teachers have been amillennial. There are fewer that are post-millennial, but there have been a couple that are also post-millennial. And so, you know, I say that because what, what I have found my experience in evangelicalism which I know some of you look at me and think I'm still just the baby-faced young guy, all right? The truth is I've been in this church life for a very long time, some of it as a pastor, but the others as everything else that you could be in church as either a baby, a toddler, a young boy. I mean, I've, I've been in RAs, I've been in training union, all right? That goes way back, all right? Training union, some of you know what I'm talking about. So I've been in this my, my entire life, and for some reason, when, especially in our context, when it comes to eschatology, and, and especially those who are premillennial, which is a position I'm going to argue, some of them get really hardcore on this stuff, as if if you don't believe every aspect of premillennialism, then you don't really believe the Bible. Which, which, so I just wanted to make sure to debunk that, all right? That is not the case. Now, I disagree. With, with elements of amillennialism, though there's some elements I do appreciate and agree with. I, I disagree with postmillennialism, though there are one or two points that I find helpful. So I wanted to lay that out, those positions, what they argue in favor of, their strong points. I also noted the ways in which I would counter uh, their strong points. In other words, saying, you know, I, I think though there are still some problematic points of view here. So that's what we've been doing, walking through those. I hope it hasn't felt too academic or unhelpful or like we're not actually dealing with the text of Scripture, but kind of dancing around it. In fact, you might be thinking, Pastor, it sounds like you're going to dance around again more tonight. Well, a little bit, all right? Because I just want to make sure that we have this down and as best as we can, because this becomes a really complicated study and uh, could 
really become complicated if we wanted it to. I mean, it could really become, we could really get into the weeds. So tonight, we turn our attention to the third position, premillennialism. And just just to keep in mind the, the basic then distinction, the language that's used, amillennialism, as I've argued, is an unfortunate way to discuss it because it makes it sound like they don't believe in a millennial reign of Christ. They don't deny Revelation 20. They just recognize it as spiritual rather than literal. Same with postmillennialism. Um, and we've noted then their distinctions on viewing this as Revelation 20 is largely spiritual. It's not a literal thousand-year period. Um, both positions, though, anticipate the second coming of Christ. So that's why we consider them, we consider all of ourselves among the Orthodox, all right? Because they still are looking forward to the literal return of Christ. But when it comes to premillennialism, it's, it's just what it sounds like. Seems like a big word, but what we are talking about is the point of view that Revelation 20 is, in fact, largely literal. It's not that there aren't symbols in it and images in it, but that it is continuing the story of the book of Revelation. This perspective also argues fundamentally that Revelation follows a basic chronology from point A to point B. It doesn't work out neatly throughout the whole thing. It is prophetic material, what's called apocalyptic material. So it's even its own subset of prophetic material. So it's got some weird stuff in it, but it does feel, as we've studied our way through it, kind of generalized, working our way through big chunks, when you read through Revelation, it consistently uses the language and then I saw, and then I saw, and then I saw, and then it happened, and then it happened, and then it happened. In other words, what it reads to me like is as a chronology of, of events. And I would contend Revelation 20 follows naturally from Revelation 19, that, that we've, had, we've had the second coming of Christ, and then John opens this next vision by saying, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. So premillennialism is going to argue the book of Revelation is largely chronological so that Christ's return precedes a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ. So that's premillennialism in a nutshell. My guess is for the majority of people here, especially if you were brought up and have been in a Baptist context, premillennialism is what you have been taught. This, this is what you know, it's what you are familiar with, um, if end times has been taught. So, Christ returns, He rules and reigns over an earthly kingdom for a thousand years. This earthly kingdom is distinguished from the eternal state the final new heaven and new earth, which is going to be talked about in 21 and 22. So what we're going to do tonight, uh, we're going to do a, a few things, at least a couple. First, I'm going to begin by giving a bit more of a defense of premillennialism, and then we're going to be walking our way through the text. And so I will tell you that tonight, then probably with next week, 
we won't talk anymore about any kind of millennialism, all right? Okay, so we'll, we'll get through this and get to the parts then. Once we get through this, we then enter into a stage of the final works of God that you see even these divergent point of views, right? Premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial. Once we get through this, this part of chapter 20, we all kind of come back together and see things largely the same in terms of final judgment, um, the, the, the casting out of the unbeliever and Satan and, and, and all that, and then the entering in of God's people to the, to the final state, the new heaven, new earth, and we'll walk our way through what is all of that going to be like when, when those days come. So you've got notes in front of you, like I've been doing in this part of this uh, teaching. You don't have any blanks you need to fill in. Instead, it's just material that you can make notes on if you feel like you need to. But I, I, I've tried to make them as comprehensive as I could. So you see right there under number one, just a, just a basic definition of premillennialism. He'll, Jesus will rule over a kingdom for a thousand years. In a nutshell, nature's curse is removed and evil is restrained as Satan is bound during this period of time. Now, we'll get into this more as we walk our way through the passage and talk more about premillennialism. Evil is restrained... But I do believe that eventually there will be unbelievers in the millennial kingdom. I believe there will be children born during this period of time. Those children will need to confess faith in Christ. Now, as we get to it, you might say, well, Pastor, that sounds really weird. Except that when you get to the end of this part of Revelation 20, Satan is unleashed and he then rallies another rebellion. Who, who's, who's among the rebellious? Well, it's got to be those who are unredeemed. Where do they come from? All right. So they come from those who are born during the period of time uh, who, in fact, do not, um, do not place their faith in Christ. So a rebellion then will rise at the end of this 1,000-year period of time led by Satan himself. This is the reference, the weird reference to Gog and Magog, if that sounds familiar to people who've read Revelation. Uh, but like any rebellion that Satan has tried to, uh, any in, insurrection, if you pardon the use of the word, all right, this is a real one. And, and anytime they tried to do that, it's always failed miserably. And that's what's going to happen again. Christ is going to defeat this. Um, Satan, the Antichrist, they're going to be eternally judged. Unbelievers will then stand before judgment the great white throne judgment, there will be then this separation, those who are then um, resurrected unto death is, is how it will happen. There will be a resurrection of all people, including unbelievers, who will enter into eternity in a physical existence, just like we will, except theirs will be unto suffering, and ours will be unto glory. All right. So that's, that's, a, that's a, just kind of a basic definition. We'll fill this out. What I want to do now is, if you look at the second part, arguments in favor of this. And the reason why I'm giving it to you this way, this is kind of following the, the way I did the other ones. So I wanted to keep things consistent. So with the others, I 
laid out the basic definition of amillennialism and then noted arguments in favor and then noted challenges to it. So we're going to do the same thing with premillennialism before we get into the heart of the text. Number one, these are not necessarily in order of importance. Just Number one, it does have historical validity. Again, this may be something that isn't of interest to some. Maybe you've never heard this, but one of the challenges offered against premillennialism is that it was created by a guy named Darby a couple of hundred years ago. That this is really something that has arisen in the 18th, 19th century. And, and as I noted when we talked about amillennialism, in terms of church history, no position on eschatology compares to the, the rule and reign of amillennialism over church history. vast majority of church history has had amillennialism as the dominant view. That has only been, it has only been recent that that has seemed to change in evangelicalism. And so some, again, will say, well, so this was made up, not made up, but you know, this is something that was brand new. We went for 1,800 years without knowing anything about premillennialism. I would contend that is absolutely not true. That, in fact, the earliest of believers following the time of the New Testament believed in, many of them, not all of them, but many of them believed in a type of premillennialism. And I could have given you actual quotes from these church fathers, because there's a bunch of them, but I, I felt like the best quote to give you was from a guy named Philip Schaff. He, he is uh, considered one of church history's greatest historians, uh, wrote classic, a classic work and series, you know, volume, uh, multi-volume work on church history, um, and, and so that work is considered a classic. It, it's, uh, if you're interested in church history, I would commend it to you. Um, if you're interested in a quick read in church history, I would not commend it to you, all right? But it's detailed. And uh, if you were to read through Philip Schaff's uh, volumes on church history, that would put you in an elite class, all right, of people who would know church history. But here's here's what I found helpful uh, about his statement. He said this, the most striking point in the eschatology, now we'll work through the the language here, of the anti-Nicene age, and I put the dates for you. This is the period of time from about 100 A.D. to 325 A.D. You might say, why do people come up with these terms? Because historians and theologians need a job, all right? I don't know. All right, so they've come up with the term anti, which is pre-Council of Nicaea. This is the pre-Creed, the Nicene Creed, if you've heard those terms. All right, so 100 to 325 A.D. The most striking point in the eschatology of this period of time is the prominent Chiliasm, all right, which is another way to talk about a thousand-year reign, or millenarianism. So, so again, Schaff wrote, you know, this we're talking a long time ago, so the language is a little stuffier. But both of those words refer to what is called premillennialism today. And he goes on to say, that is the belief of a visible reign of Christ and glory on earth with the risen saints for a thousand years before the general resurrection and judgment. 
It was indeed not the doctrine of the church embodied in any creed or form of devotion, but widely current opinion of distinguished teachers, such as Barnabas, Papias, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Methodius, and Lactantius, while Caius, Origen, Dionysus, and the Great, the Great, and Eusebius, as afterwards Jerome and Augustine, opposed it. I know it's a mouthful, right? But I, I give you that as a summation of you know, what, what I would contend is just really clear historical evidence. Premillennialism was not, so please don't repeat that, it was not invented in the 18th and 19th century. This has been around since Christians have been around, and this has been a part of church life. I would contend that it's dominant, the dominance of amillennialism is owed to Augustine, who was a brilliant theologian in many ways, but at the same time was heavily relied upon by the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church was rock-solid amillennial and dominated then theology for nearly a thousand years, at least 800 years. So, so that, that, I think, would account then for the, the strong presence of this. Now, again, don't take that the wrong way. There were also great reformers and lovers of the word, as I've said, who, who believed in amillennialism. I just want to lay this out. The church has believed this. And the reason why this is important, you might say, okay, come on, pastor, get on with it. Why, why are you harping on this? Well, because it matters. If somebody comes to you and says, I've got a theology or doctrine that's never been taught in the church before. You should keep on walking, all right? If somebody actually comes to you and says, oh, I, I know the best and brightest minds that God has placed in his church for the last 2,000 years haven't picked up on this, but I have. Whoa. So that should sound, I mean, alarm bells should go off. Um, that, that's, that's wrong on any number of levels. I have found something brand new that nobody's ever seen before. That is a problem. It is. It's a huge problem. And you'll hear even, you'll hear some people do that though. So that's why I am pressing this. Church history does not prove doctrine, right? We go to the word, but church history does help come alongside to help us see how has the church thought about these things theologically, how have they understood the Bible? So I'm just, just putting this out here that the position I'm arguing for does have long historic standing. All right, number two. Second argument in its favor is that it, I would contend, it, it more consistently embraces a literal approach to Old Testament prophecy. Now, on the one hand, I've, I've noted how amillennialism does have something in its favor, and that is the way it can deal with some really tricky passages and say, okay, well, we understand this. We may not understand all of the symbolism in it, but this is, this is speaking spiritually, symbolically. A and I appreciate some of that. At the same time, though, I do find some Old Testament prophetic statements that seem hard to reconcile and to suggest these are merely spiritual and now promises assumed in the church age. I've given you just a few examples here, uh, uh, and, and really of Old Testament prophecies that I think point to a period of time in the future 
that's better than the one we're in now, but not as good as the one we'll be in forever, which is the millennial kingdom. Uh, I, I, I don't see um, application now and certainly don't see it to heaven. So, for example, Isaiah 65, 20 indicates babies won't die in infancy and men won't die prematurely. Well, is that true of the age now? Well, of course not. Do, do babies die? Yes. Do young men die? Well, of course. No, no one here, and there's not an amillennialist, by the way, who would say, no, that's, that doesn't happen anymore, all right? No one would say that. However, this language here of the holding out the potential for death, well, babies aren't going to die in heaven either. In other words, the concept itself doesn't seem to point to something that I would need to be reminded of because in heaven nobody dies at all. Why would this be an encouragement? Well, I would contend that there will be death in the millennial kingdom. I believe this promise is saying there won't be premature deaths. This promise is saying there won't be babies dying in infancy. There won't be young men dying. I think there will be death, but I don't think it will be the pain of death that we experience now as a part of the fullness of the curse that's in place. So I would say a passage like Isaiah 65. Isaiah 11, 6 to 9 seems to indicate a time when nature is renewed beyond the condition of the world now. Furthermore, verses 10 and 11 seem to indicate um, that there will be some still seeking the Messiah. So, so again, it seems to describe a period of time not indicative of the age in which we live, but also not indicative of the end. Another example is Psalm 72. It seems to predict the glories of the reign of Messiah, and yet also speaks of Christ's enemies. Again, which seems to describe a time not yet. And then Zechariah 14, 5 through 17. And again, you can go and you can read these um, and, and some of these references will come back up a little bit later, depending on how far we get tonight. Probably not tonight. All right. Is it describing a period of time that is greater than our own, yet is still not the eternal state? So these aren't the only examples. I just bring these up as a few. I think premillennialism provides a way to read the Old Testament that I would contend is a bit more in line with our particular approach to the Bible, and that is to seek and pursue a more literal understanding of these passages w without necessarily requiring like a, 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 you know, a, a stoic kind of literalism, a literalness to these passages uh, that, that I think have, have a better application without just kind of writing them off as mere spiritual or being consumed in the church age, or awaiting then what would be heaven to come. Again, it's just, just a couple of examples of that. Number three, I, I would argue this also reflects the testimony of the New Testament. I would say there are passages that allude to events that we'll be talking about, in particular the resurrection, that there is a reference to the resurrection of the saints, yet at the same time the putting down of the enemies of Christ. So it sounds to me as if that is describing one event followed by another event, the resurrection of God's people and then a later event of putting down his enemies. 
Again, that, that's just one example. But there'd be other verses in the New Testament that I think uh, premillennialism is a better way to understand what it's talking about. And then number four, this provides a more literal, now this may sound strange because I've already argued that one of the benefits of amillennialism is somewhat its simplicity, but I would contend what I've read of amillennialism and Revelation 20 doesn't sound that simple to me. I, I do find it hard to really buy into some of the descriptions that are made that in fact I would say a more literal approach is in fact a simpler one, even if it creates a few more questions that can't be answered. I would contend that the creation of questions doesn't necessarily mean something more complicated. It might mean something mysterious, but it doesn't necessarily mean more complicated. I think the plainest meaning of Revelation 20 is in fact chronological with chapter 19, and I think then chapter 20 then speaks of a literal period of time. I think it makes the passage work out in a, in a simpler kind of way. So, for example, we'll look at this in just a minute, but this binding of the devil, the way this is described, I don't see how this describes the condition of Satan right now. This seems to be expressing something far more intense, far more intense. We'll, we'll see that here in just a minute. Uh, but that, that's just, that's just one, one example here. Um, and so, so again, I, I think all of this as we read through it, and we won't go through all those bullet points because we'll be talking through this chapter, all right? We'll be talking through it as we go. But the bottom one, that, that final one to me is perhaps as, as helpful as anything. To me, the chapter presupposes all that transpired in chapters 12 through 19. So I just have a hard time of reading this any other way. And, and just so you know, the tags that show up again and again and again then show up in chapter 21. So it's not just that chapter 20, I think, naturally follows chapter 19. This is brilliant. You ready for this? I, so I'm seminary trained, all right? I think chapter 20 also naturally precedes chapter 21. Brilliant, right? I know, I know. That's why I had all that training. Okay. I, to me, it just seems to flow naturally. Chapter 20, verse 1, then I saw an angel. Verse 4, and I saw thrones. Verse 7, now when the thousand years have expired. Verse 11, then I saw a great white throne. Chapter 20, 1, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So, so it, it seems to me like all of this is giving me one event after another. Um, and if you were to go back to chapter 19, you see the same kind of textual phrase repeated. Then I saw, then I saw, then it happened, now it happened. And, and, and when we read the Gospels, we for sure see the Gospels as using those tag words as driving the chronology of the story along. I'd say the same thing is happening here. All right, so that's my arguments in favor of it, all right? But let me try and be as fair as I can. There are problems with premillennialism. One of them is this first one, the nature of the second coming. Especially premillennialism that is attached to the pre-rapture, uh, pre-tribulation pre view of the rapture. Here is the challenge that is made. You actually end up arguing for three comings of Christ. Right? His, his first one... This baby, 
Then the second coming, and this is the challenge that's offered, the second coming then is coming for the church in the rapture. And then there's a third coming, and that's Revelation chapter 19. So they, they do point out, you know, this, this sounds like, it doesn't seem like there's very clear textual evidence that say 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, portions of 1 Corinthians 15, especially that last text, that that necessarily is talking about an event that's different than what happens at the second coming. But the pre-trib rapture view, premillennialism put together, seems to add in a coming of Christ. Now, the way I would challenge that, one, I, you know, I would say, yes, I get that, and there is, that does need to be explained. I would contend, though, that the way that the rapture is taught and the way I taught it is not a second coming of Christ at all. He doesn't appear to anybody. He doesn't touch down. He snatches us away. So it's not actually a coming. Yes, it is Christ taking His church, but it's not necessarily then this visible return of Christ. And I don't know of any premillennial pre-trib person that suggests that what happens at the tribulation is this visible appearance of Christ in the sky that everybody sees and all of a sudden Christian pilots disappear and planes crash into mountains, all right? I don't know anybody that argues it that way. Instead, arguing that what Christ does is He takes, takes us home. It does talk about Christ descending, like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, but it doesn't speak of Him touching down. All right, so what else is Christ going to do but come down to call us home? Again, that, that's just, that would be common language. So that's how I would answer that challenge. Number two, uh, a second challenge Again, I know this seems convoluted because I've argued that some of premillennialism is a simpler approach, but they are right that premillennialism can get really complicated. Have you seen the charts and timelines for Book of Revelation? They can be really complicated. And they're right. That just doesn't mean that it's wrong. And I know that's a that's a cop-out of an answer, isn't it? Like, oh, come on, man. Nonetheless, that is still true. It's like the old saying, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you, all right? Just because it's complicated, it doesn't necessarily mean that it is invalid. I, I would agree that they are right. There are some complications, and, and there, are some, there are some aggressive ways that premillennialism is laid out in such painstaking detail that I myself, as somebody who prefers premillennialism, looks at and thinks, I, I think we need to cool it on some of that. Uh, you know, that I, I really don't know that we can say with such certainty that all of these little bitty details are exactly right. So, they're right. It is. It is, a, it is a complicated view. At the same time, I, I would, though, still contend that the premillennial reading of Revelation is consistent with how we are encouraged to read the rest of the Bible. That is largely chronological, largely literal. Which, by the way, I want to emphasize this again. Just because I believe there's symbolism doesn't mean that that is not contradictory to a literal interpretation of the text. The nature of the text itself allows for symbolism, just like the book of Psalms. We recognize there's poetry here, there's imagery here. Same thing in Revelation. But I, I, again, I would contend that largely a literal approach is best. Number three, and this is where I think they have, I think this is the best argument against my view. And that is the tendency to predict events. In particular, 
the actual second coming of Christ. Yes, that is a problem. And it happens. It happens with premillennials. It's almost like they can't help themselves. <laughs> To say they recognize, the, you know, premillennials recognize, premillennialism would say, yeah, Jesus did say, no one will know the day or the hour. And I'm not, and sometimes they'll go as far as saying, I'm not telling you the exact day or the exact hour he's coming back. Nonetheless, Saddam Hussein was definitely the Antichrist. I heard that. You heard that. There were books written about that in the 90s. Oh, wait, no, we were wrong about that. It was Barack Obama. Well, I mean, we've, we're well beyond the seven-year period of time, so that must have been wrong too, right? Okay, so, so this is what happens. This, by the way, has always been happening. Um, I remember my mom telling me that there was a period of time, and this is a little bit kind of before my time when I would have been theologically aware, that there were people who were convinced Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist, all right? So he's before my time. Some of you may remember that, but that was a thing in the evangelical world, Henry Kissinger, all right? Well, if that's the case, I mean, then we're really wrong about our timing here. But this is what, this is the danger in premillennialism, this, this move to predict so that I will hear people talk. I like to read Revelation on the one side and the paper on the other. And I understand some of what that may mean, but what that, what that encourages me to do is to read into the text modern news stories. Now, could it be that some of these new stories end up being the fulfillment of prophecy? Sure. I mean, at some point they will be. Yes. But I, I, I would then be cautious here. This is something we have to be cautious with. And that is the way if we get too aggressive on timelining this thing and think we can figure out every bit of the symbols and elements and timing, that we get really close to doing something that Jesus himself said we can't do, and that is determine the day and the hour of Christ's return. Now, at the same time, so you say, well, pastor, how would you counter that? Well, I would, though, argue Jesus has provided the church with information that we might know the times. This is a very clear biblical encouragement to us. And that we would recognize signs of the end, even if it doesn't necessarily mean this is the actual end. Did that make any sense? I don't know if that made sense. I hope it did that we need to be aware of, well, yes, Jesus did warn us about this, this, and this. And, and Paul does warn about how in the last days there will be this, this, and this. And Revelation does talk about it. And Old Testament prophets do talk about these things, that we are encouraged to be mindful of this. But at the same time, premillennialism does have a flaw, and this would, this would be one of them. Um, it, it would encourage people to look at all these things going on. Uh, and, and, you know, if you go back to the 80s, well, it, it was all going to go downhill because of Russia, all right? So Russia was the big problem. Everybody was reading Russia into the, into the Bible. Everybody then was reading China. Then everybody was reading, you know, Muslims and Muslim terrorists into it. So this, this is just what happens. And, and premillennialism does encourage this. I, I don't know that I got a great answer for that retort other than say we got to stick to the text. Uh, and that's, that would be then the flaw. What it's doing is encouraging maybe a move beyond the text. This, by the way, comes out in us too. And here, here's what happens. And maybe this would be a good way to end because it's 7 o'clock and so we'll have to pick up next week. Um, with, we'll get to the actual text next week, all right? Uh, Revelation 20. But this, is, this is just a good reminder to us because I hear this. 
as, as we see the culture becoming what it is, here, here's, here's what I know you're tempted to do. And you all know I love you, right? This bothers you when I say stuff like that. Because you think, oh man, he's about to give us a theological spanking. All right, you know I love you. At the same time, here's, here's what you got to be careful of. Is our culture worse than you've ever known it? The answer is yes to that. Yes. Is it worse now than any culture has ever been in history? Absolutely not. If you think so, you've not read enough history. It's not. There have been people groups in, church, in history that have been way more immoral, way more godless. I know some of you think, oh, it doesn't matter. Nope, this is it. This is the end. And Pastor Scott's never going to know his grandkids because this is all going to come to an end. Maybe. All right, maybe. But and I know maybe some of you don't believe me when I say this could go on for another thousand years. So this, this is what we're not going to do as we engage in a premillennial view of the text. We're not going to try and figure out, is this really the end of time? Are we in the last days? Well, yes, because Jesus said as soon as he ascended, we were in the last days. Did you know that? The New Testament says this. We've been in the last days since Jesus left the planet physically. It's always been the last days. So we want to be careful here. We want to be knowledgeable of the signs. But at the same time, we don't want to presume to know the intricacies of God's sovereign plan that still remain at a mysterious theological arm's length from us, right? And just trust then, if I have another day tomorrow, then I need to be faithful to the gospel to preach it to the ends of the earth and make disciples. And that's what we're going to do. And that's what we're going to keep doing. So it's a good reminder to us as we close out this kind of initial defense of millennial, premillennialism, and uh, we'll look to get into some of the, the deeper weeds of it next week. All right, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you again for gathering us on this Lord's Day, and uh, thank you for the opportunity we've had to be together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I just thank you for what is the privilege of being able to fellowship with this church each and every week. What a joy it is to come to a place where your people love you and love the Word, uh, expect it to be rightly taught. And, and are committed to viewing life through the lens of this word. Now, may that be true of us as we enter into this week. We thank you for the week that is before us. We want to live faithfully as your people in the world in which you have placed us, confident that the gospel still saves. So use us as a means to your end and for your glory that we might fulfill all the roles and responsibilities you've given to us. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.